Hey everyone, this is Cassius Felicella and you're listening to Homeroom, a podcast where we interview up and coming founders running some of the most innovative technology companies in the world. My guest today is the co-founder and managing director of Bonfire VC, Mark Mullen. So Bonfire is an investment firm in Santa Monica focusing on early stage B2B SaaS. The team has a very boutique approach, making only a few investments each year and typically taking board seats. This strategy has allowed their funds to outperform over 90% of other firms and take a winning position in the market. I was very excited for this conversation. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. You've mentioned in many previous interviews that you've worked with the father of cable television, Bill Daniels. I thought it was an awesome story. You highlighted his like World War II career, how he saw a boxing match and then actually created cable. How did you actually get that job though? Yeah. Um, one of the other things he did was he started other businesses, uh, clearly. And one of them was called the Women's Bank. And that's a bank in Denver that became a large commercial bank, uh, just happened to be run by women. And this was uh, in the 80s. So, you know, he was way ahead on the diversity front. One of the women who worked there, one of the senior executives, had met me through my dad uh, in some sort of context. and. For anybody listening who is younger and looking for a job, and I often help people with this, it's really hard, of course, even in today's environment to to get a job that you want, but it just takes a lot of effort, a lot of trying, a lot of meeting people, a lot of asking people, do you have any ideas, a lot of just just throwing a lot of stuff against the wall. And and I know that's maybe easier said than done, but it, it really does matter. I think my dad asked her to talk to me. She didn't have a job per se. I wasn't looking to work at the bank, but she made a comment. She goes, you know, I know Bill Daniels started this bank. I know him. Maybe I can get somebody at Daniels to talk to you. And as it turned out, she got him to talk to me. So, you know, I think all of us can look back at times and see where some of the very lucky occurrences happened in our careers or lives. And that was a moment. And so, you know, she got a meeting with him. For me, which was really kind of out of context, I was 25 years old. And so I went to meet with him and he wasn't specifically hiring. There was not a job posting. You know, that was this again, this is early 90s. So there wasn't really that formal. Although the meeting was formal, I wore a suit and so did he. And we spoke for about 40 minutes. You know, I'm sure he was the kind of individual that he gave a lot of his time and effort, but also was not going to be sit around for bullshit. If he wasn't interested in what I had to say or interested in at least chatting with me after the first 15 minutes, I think that conversation would have been over in the first 15 minutes. And somehow I resonated with him as an individual, which is coming back to how I try to, I try to connect with our founders before we actually make an investment. You know, when you're the boss and you're known as the father of cable TV and you own a bunch of assets and you're a billionaire, you can kind of say whatever you want um, in terms of uh in terms of him saying, oh, I like this guy, I'm going to hire him. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm going to figure it out. So that's how it happened. In your experience, what have been the most creative ways people have perhaps reached out to people in your network or even yourself? I actually had somebody tell me this and they, they, they didn't really need to, but I often tell people this today. Younger folks that have worked for me, I always tell them, you know, make sure you pay it forward. And it sounds very simple, but I've always remembered the guy who told me that. And so I've always remembered that. I've always uh, tried to 
um, help people out on occasion, um, but there has to be some effort and quality effort on the front end. Um, I like you reached out to me cold, to be honest. And but your email and the way you reached out to me was very thoughtful and something resonated with me in the conversation, which is why we're talking. I'm not being boastful, but do you know how many people reach out to me daily or you know wanting to do a podcast interview, et cetera? And so there just has to be some sort of connection and attempt. And um, but I'm also open, and I think other people should be open to being being able to pay it forward in some way. And speaking of paying it forward, you did about a year and two months with the city of Los Angeles. You were a senior advisor for them. I don't think a lot of people who are in your position have worked in public enterprise before. What would you say were some of the biggest things you learned? And then what did you take back to Bonfire? Well, um, it was kind of a unique situation where, real briefly, the mayor at the time had just won his second term in 2009. We had kind of off-year cycles here in L.A. And the mayor of L.A. manages about 4 million people. L.A. County is 10 million. So the city of L.A. falls inside of the county of L.A. The county of L.A. includes places like Santa Monica and Beverly Hills and Culver City, which are all their own cities. So actually, the city of L.A. doesn't include those three. But the city of L.A. includes Venice and Pacific Palisades and out in the valley. There's a massive, massive area. And there's 15 city council members that run that area. So in New York, um, when Mayor Bloomberg was elected in 2001, he uh, attempted to instill or to bring in private sector individuals to try to create more of a public-private partnership, PPP, we used to call it. Whereas, you know, just trying to uh, instill a little bit more of a culture of, of, of entrepreneurialism rather than uh, governmentism, that's a word. Many of the same people that knew that were also aware of what's happening in New York. And when the new mayor was elected here, there was a group of individuals who were very um, impactful, wanted the mayor here to attempt to do the same thing. And he asked an individual by the name of Austin Butner, who ended up being head of LASD as well, um, just a very uh, philanthropical guy who's been around for a long time, but was also an investment banker, very successful, to become the first deputy mayor, and which is a position that was made up. He and I had been working together for many years. He knew I had just sold the firm, Daniels, um, and was um, you know taking a break and was able to convince me that it would be a unique opportunity to you know, come down and be a senior advisor to the mayor, basically number two to, to Austin, which was pretty interesting considering how much power we had or at least responsibility we had in the city. That was the, that was the opportunity and the attempt. The actual, what we were able to accomplish, it's hard to, hard to really list out as a whole bunch of separate accomplishments. I think the government has a lot of difficulty listing out their accomplishments. And um, so it was a completely unique experience for me as an individual, um, I was not very well aware of what L.A. was. I had moved here only three years prior. It allowed me to learn a lot about L.A. and particularly from the economic as well as structural parts of L.A. that eventually informed me as I was a venture capitalist. I learned how big L.A. is, how important it is, the assets that it managed. Um, you know, we own, the L- we own LAX, the city of L.A. We own the Department of Water and Power. We own the largest port in the, in the United States, which is Long Beach Port. I mean, like, massive, massive assets that most governments don't have. That was the reason and the attempt to get involved. Um, It was very unique. Like I I really am not politically motivated. I don't have uh, interest in in being in politics, that's for sure. I did have interest in getting involved and trying to make some changes and do some things, actual real work, as opposed to just being a politician. 
So that's how that started. I don't have a lot of faith in the process in the system, though. Uh, I think that a lot of people would like to say politicians, like I just said, are, are, are difficult uh, to be supportive of, that they don't get things done, that they, they have a lot of rhetoric, that they talk. I think that's uh, mostly true, but I think the whole system is, is not set up for success anymore. If you were to just be um, on the entrepreneurial side, it's very clear what people get rewarded for, right? Creativity and money, meaning uh, if you're um, a low-level, early, early stage or mid-level employee of the government, if you do something that's fantastic, if you generate more revenue, for example, if you're taking it to a company perspective, you get paid more, you get promoted, you get more things. I mean, that's the, there's no motivation like that inside of government. You're making forty-seven thousand dollars a year. You might make forty-eight and a half the next year, even though you even though you worked really hard. You're very smart. You did everything you could to improve the environment that you were in. There's not the motivation and the reward that we see in private sector. And this is across the country and the world, frankly. This is local governments and national governments. You know, there's there's very little motivation to make change. There's a lot of motivation to not lose your job. I'm not too sure if you've ever read Andrew Yang's book. He has a proposal where people who, if they do go work for government, they should get f- compensated far more, but then you should limit their participation in private enterprise in the future. So you kind of eliminate this tit-for-tat scenario. Do you have a position on that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a panacea. That's, that's like so unrealistic to happen. It's naive to just say that. It's a good idea if you could ever implement it, but you can't. You know, we're talking about we're talking about hundreds of thousands of governments inside of the United States. So we're just going to use the U S for an example. You know, you can't mandate a national government can't mandate a state government, state government can't mandate local government. So you have to have the same mindset and mentality across every employee inside of every government across the United States to make these types of changes. And that's the sad part about it. Fair enough. Well, let's talk about something pretty cool in my opinion, how you actually started. So you did double M capital, before Bonfire, you also did Mall Capital, which I thought was really cool. Can you talk about how you kind of noticed that, I guess, silo in the market of SaaS, and especially in Southern California at the time? Right. So um, Mall Capital is 25, 20-something years old. Mall Capital was my entity to make investments in other venture capital funds, private equity funds, and directly in investments. Okay. And then uh, once I sold the comp- once we sold the company, and then I did the government stint, I basically took two years off and restarted in 2012. And having worked for the individual that I worked for, Bill, um, as I've said before, I was never going to work for anybody again, essentially unemployable. And so I had to start my own company. And what I had, I, what I had seen in, in Southern California, particularly the Los Angeles area, was a massive, massive economic opportunity, a massive, massive population, thousands and thousands of businesses and very little venture capital. There's a lot of money here. We know that. There's a lot of private equity and hedge funds and, up and real estate funds. We know that. But very little venture capital. And so I felt like there was a hole or an opportunity for me to, to slot in there. There, were, there was room for more venture capitalists here if you had, a, if you had money. Because I, I often joke that I couldn't have gone up to Silicon Valley and raised a flag and said, hey, I just started a new fund. You know, let, me, let me invest in your company. In LA, I could kind of do it. Because um, there was there was very few players here, and many of the players here that were the players that were here, we all actually knew each other, and it was it's much more collaborative community. It's getting less so now, but it was much more collaborative then. 
So that's when I started Double M Capital, which is Double M Partners, which is uh, the two funds that I that I managed under that. Now, as far as the B two B, one thing I learned at uh, working in the cable TV and broadband business is recurring revenue. You know, I, I understand that we had consumers as customers, we also had businesses, but there's nothing better than recurring revenue, and 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 then being able to build a plan around recurring revenue. Um, you know, and and that was interesting. The second thing is. I was uncertain around what types of technology and opportunities were being built primarily around the iPhone, which we now know has happened. Everything in 2011, 12, 13, when I started Double M was really focused on apps and content inside apps and social media and stuff like that. And I um, had nothing against them. I just wasn't very comfortable with understanding the business model there. And, and you want to talk about no recurring revenue, right? So that was all built on the come in terms of advertising revenue. It wasn't built on app downloads and paying for that. It was built on the future. And it's really hard to build a recurring cash flow model from business. So that's why I was much more interested in, 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 in what has become SaaS. But two more things to say there. One is um, I had a former client who then has now become uh, started four different companies of which I've invested in all of them. And he's an investor in all of my funds. Um, he started a company in 2002 called Bird on a Wire Networks, which is called at the time an MSP. And MSP stood for Managed Service Provider. And that was really the precursor to what we now call SaaS, Managed Service Provider. They had They had all the infrastructure. They managed the services for you. We didn't call it SaaS at the time but it was software as a service, right? And, um, and so I had an f- inkling and feeling for that as a potential. And the second thing is back in 2010, 11, 12, if you went back and looked at the media, everything was taught, we were starting to talk about the cloud. And it was a concept that people had a difficulty with. I mean, even then you were thinking, what does this mean? It's in the cloud. Like, but the cloud in general, I just felt like the cloud and mobile were going to be the future. And it wasn't unique in that perspective. It's just something that I, that I said, that's, that's actually something I feel more content, comfortable with. And if somebody were to look at my deck that I used in the beginning of 2012, it says we're going to invest in the cloud and mobile. Now, you wouldn't say that today. You'd be idiotic to say I'm going to invest in the cloud and mobile because it's, always, it's already standard. Like, of course, you're doing something that works on mobile and something in the cloud. Of course. So we don't even say that. That's what it was only 10 years ago. Yeah, it's very interesting how much it has transitioned. And then going to how you've built Bonfire. So you kind of started as a bit of an angel investor in an LP at Mall, established it more at Double M, and now you're actually building out a team. I'm pulling up the numbers here. You've got, I believe it's a seven-person team. You do seven to nine deals a year, and then you've got 24 to 28 portfolio companies. Right. Why not more? Why not less? Well, um, it's, it's actually a function of scalability. And so our model has been both Jim and I separately, and then we've joined forces as we've added team. We um, lead almost all of our deals. As a matter of fact, I can't tell you the last time we didn't lead a deal over the last year plus, but I want to say about 90% of the deals, we actually lead it. We write the biggest check. We take the board seat. And we actually put ourselves up as hands-on investors. We try to, we help you get through that seed stage through the A and we're going to stay with you for your life. And that takes work. And so if you're going to be responsible for that company, both on the board seat and responsible to other investors that have also invested in the company and then responsible to the employees and the founders of that company, you can only scale yourself so much. 
Okay, so if we change the model and said, hey guys, we got money, we're going to invest. I'm not taking the board seat. You know, I'm happy to, to take a call anytime, but you know, let's just keep it that. You can do 50 deals, uh, but you can't do deals where you're responsible for being very helpful. And so we feel like we're a little bit restricted to doing kind of two deals a year per partner because we're falling off of other prior investments, for example. We're trying to keep that as steady state. Jim and I, uh, in our experience over the five funds we managed prior to starting Bonfire, it turns out that all those funds were roughly 22 to 30 companies. Uh, and that's what we found is that it feels like the right, um, both diversification in terms of number and diversification or number of companies that we can actually manage effectively. And that's how we've come to that number. Is there a firm that, I don't want to use the word model, but is there one you look up to? Because this sounds very like benchmark-esque as opposed to like SV Angel. Well, I look up to a lot of firms. Um, benchmark would be one of them. I don't know how they manage their numbers. I mean, USV, I'm friends with Fred. I've, I've loved to invest in, in, in USV. He, they are investors in, in Bonfire. You know, they've been very um, specifically um What's the discipline in terms of how many investments they make and what types of investments? So I think if you if you we've modeled ourselves after you know that, but um, but really has also come from our own experience and being able to understand what we can manage. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. One of the other things I wanted to talk about with Bonfire was kind of your approach to PR. I find it really interesting. And there was that quote from Venture Unlock where you said, "If we lead with performance, and then our LPs start talking to our founders, we'll have won." So staying away from the spotlight is far easier said than done. Like, how do you ensure that the team does that? And then for future members that come on, how do you ensure that they have that mindset as well? Well, I mean, that really, we really have three customers, I would say. The customers we have are founders, our investors slash LPs, and our team, right? And the community, really, to be, to be supportive of the Southern California community or other communities that we're invested in. So we really have four constituents. In order for us to raise money, and we need to raise capital in order to invest capital in founders, and actually have you know we have to appeal to um, to those LPs, and the LPs are much more inclined to you know want to see a story, want to see performance, and want to see that backed up. We we can we're not the type of people that can talk talk and win by saying we think we're going to invest in these types of companies and we think we can do it and we're we're great. I felt like we needed to do that and try to generate performance and then, and then have a conversation with LPs like, look, we think this is what's going to happen in the market. We think B2B SaaS seed is the best market to be in. Now, why do we think that? Because we have this performance that's backing us up and here's our performance. Okay. And why do we think that? Because we think that founders want us to invest in them. We have good relationships with founders and we would love for you to, to fare that. So we can give them all the numbers on performance and they can say, okay, great. Now we need to do diligence and we need to talk to your founders. And we feel that once we can get them to that point, it's just going to be a much more um, convincing conversation. If you're a limited partner and you see our performance and then you talk to our founders and you understand, uh, hopefully from those founders, that we add value to what they're building. And so now as we, and okay, so that's, that was our style. We didn't want to lead with and tweet with and whatever. Hey, we're great. And here's what we do. Uh, we wanted to have the conversation behind the scenes. Now, I don't have any problem with any of our, um, as we build team, those individuals, because they're more likely to be younger anyway, those individuals having um, skill set at social media or other types of um, uh, 
um, communication, call it LinkedIn or Twitter, that would be supportive of our strategy, our personality and growing. It's just not something that we have been specifically focused on. We try and be very consistent in how we how we communicate with the markets, both the market being investors and founders and the industry. We hired um, a head of platform and marketing about a year and a half ago, and she's been fantastic in terms of really crystallizing our strategy and making it very consistent. Um, all the communication we have with our founders, all the information and advice we provide is much more consistent. You'll see that across our website and other things like that. That's okay on how we're building it. But as far as how do we hire, how do we bring on team members who have a similar mentality? Um, that's just part of our interview process. Like that's going to take a, you know, we're not going to hire people from out that we don't know. I mean, that we don't know, haven't gotten to know over time. If I hire somebody who's really boastful and wants to pound their chest in Twitter, they better have something backing that up. Okay. Going back to question five. Um, as an investor, you've lived through quite a few economic downturns like 87, 91, 01, 08. I think that brings a lot of wisdom. Like, How do you think about taking advantage of some of these dips that we've seen? Of course, we've seen in tech recently, a lot of layoffs occur. How do you think about that stuff beyond just the classic mantra of buy low and sell high? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've actually been fortunate to have been through these cycles, um, maybe too many of them. You know, my first job out of college was 87. And I was investing in the stock market and lost almost all my money. And that took, it took me another almost 10 years to actually start investing in the stock market because I was so afraid of it by then. And then I started investing in 97, 98, 99, had a great run, right? And then, and then in 00 and 01, we know what happened. So I made money, but I didn't make as much money as I could because I didn't sell anything. And then, um, and then uh, when the market started recovering, I didn't have the cash. And so in, when, when 06, 07 happened, I was cash flush. And was prepared more for that um, that problem. The point is, uh, the only way to take advantage of these opportunities is actually to have capital. And so, what it has prepared me to do is not be all in on any angle um, and be prepared for it. But you know, each one of those has been different. Each one of these down down drafts has been different. To date, all those have come back as big runs, um, but they've all been different and. And the one we're going through now, I have no ability to see through it and tell anybody when it's going to end or, or not. From a, from a bonfire perspective, we're very fortunate that we raised two new funds in January of this year. So just from a, both from my own personal preference or personal strategy, as well as the, the, the firm strategy, having capital at this time is a great opportunity. I'm going to jump to question eight, just because we are we are close on time. Um, but you've mentioned in previous interviews that you've been like you take time management very seriously. And a VC that I'm interviewing in the coming weeks, he said something really interesting. He said somewhere along the way to global domination, <laughs> a bit exaggerated, but many of us in the tech world have traded the goal of a good life for an efficient life without even knowing it. I think I'm going to be asking this question to a lot of people because I'm wondering, like, how do you kind of balance those two things? Spending time with friends, family, outings versus being like hyper efficient at work, crushing out deals and, you know, just getting shit done. Okay. There's not one answer for all age groups, right? And generations. So I I think that that makes it a lot of interesting sense that he said, because um, part of the American culture, and I don't mean to generalize, but there is a bit more of that here in the U.S., which is grind, 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 and not 
you know, not really smell the roses as much along the way. And the only reason I bring that up is because my, my, my dad just got back from Italy and a friend of mine, Howard Linsden, who you probably heard of well, he's got a great podcast, is over in Italy. And just using that as an example, and I used to live in France and England, and, you know, there's just a, there's just a more of an, there is an appreciation, I feel, that individuals in Europe, in particular Southern Europe, have for living the good life and taking the time to live the good life. And that doesn't mean like stay in an expensive restaurant or hotel or something. It's just like take a pause. The pause of being able to to enjoy and sit there is more more um, um, pronounced than in the U.S. And so if I were to go back to when I was younger, I used to have the saying, which almost sounds gross now, I'm like one hour awake is better than one hour sleep. And I have this concept of like, I want to experience life. And so that one hour that I'm awake, if I'm going to sleep six hours, what's the matter if I sleep five? Because I have that extra hour awake. And that extra hour may have been like um, reading something, watching TV, having a cocktail, out at a club, whatever it was, it was always something. And so I had this mentality, which is, you know, I want to be awake more than sleep and get more out of life. But the reality was, as life takes over, uh, to, you know, I'm just going to use myself as an example, and I'm sure there's gone through, kids came. You know, marriage came, kids came, and you start to have to, um, if you want to have both efficiency and productivity and, and happiness at work, you still have to do all the work, but then you, you have to find the right balance to be able to spend time. I wanted the right balance to be able to spend time with my family, particularly as they were growing and younger. And I feel the only way that that can happen is that you enhance your productivity of the time you have which is really the efficiency of time. Okay. So in some ways I feel that when somebody, when my founders have a kid um, that forces them into the own things that I had to do, which was make my time, use my time better and be more efficient. It doesn't have to just be with a kid. It could be with a partner. It could be with a new passion that you have a new hobby. If you're going to add things into your life to take time, you have to be more efficient. You can't, there's no more time. There's only 24 hours a day. So you have to be more efficient. So that's, I think, where where this this guy is coming from is like, you know, we're, we've we've now become efficient, which I get. Um, I'm like, okay, if I can get that thing done, and I can get over, and I can get in the car by five oh five, I can get to my son's basketball game at five twenty seven, you know, and and then I'll be there before tip off. That's kind of how I run my life right now. And so when people mess with my schedule, right, then then I get frustrated. And so. Um, that's life, like in any case. And I, and I get that, you know, people um, um, have different schedules in life and, and they operate differently. I honestly, uh, the reason I try to emphasize and, and be as time efficient as possible is so I can spend that other time with my family, reading, uh, swimming, uh, playing golf, something else that that's the whole point, right? Is to, is to, to utilize your time as efficiently as possible. It's hard. In some ways, I'm the boss, right? I get, I get it. Like when I was younger, I was always waiting for Bill to tell me what to do. And as a final question, what are some do's and don'ts when pitching you? What do you look for? What do you tend to stay away from? What are some secrets that you could share on the podcast? I've had the good fortune of meeting tons and tons and tons of people and founders and people who want to be entrepreneurs in different countries, and and so I often start with. Um, trying a little bit of trying to understand where, you know, what, what motivates them, where they're from, 
I don't necessarily care about colleges and things like that. I just want to know kind of some things where they're from. And because I've been around, I usually have some sort of context or some sort of way to connect. And so, you know, I, I get that maybe my questioning is um, asking personal questions. And uh, of course, I only ask appropriate personal questions. But if somebody is uncomfortable answering and, and telling me that a little bit about themselves, um, I'm very uncomfortable of having an interest in investing in the company because what you have to recognize, of course, is if we're able to work together, we don't say like, hey, we're giving you money. We're your boss. Like we're, we're your team. You know, we want you to be successful. We're, this is, this, we want you a lot to be successful, right? And that takes a long time. There's a lot of phone calls. There's a lot of meetings. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of excitement. And you've heard this before and know this to be true. These things take three to 15 years. You know, if it takes three, that was an early sale and it went out of business. But it takes a long time. And we don't have to be friends. Uh, we certainly need to be respectful and peers. But we don't, you know, we do need to know each other a little bit. And to the extent that I can't or generate or develop a personal relationship with um, the founder in the early stages, because either they won't share or are uncomfortable, it's just not going to happen, right? I don't have the 15 years to spend with somebody that, um, you know, we're not going to be able to share information with. So I look for that. Um, I, I look for courtesy and politeness and basics. I look for earnestness. Um, I look for respect, respect not of me, but of their own team already. Um, you know, we start to talk about in, in some cases, there are co-founders. You want to understand that relationship. Um, I like to talk about the team members and how they got to hire. Because usually when we meet someone, there's four to 10 or 11 team members already. Right. And I try to understand, like, is that is this founder just going to kill people like or is it um, really some sort of respect that that she has for the team that she's building? If that's going to play out over time, because if you can't motivate and you can't show respect in hiring your own team. Because you don't have much. We might give you two million bucks or somebody might give you, you know, we'll give you two, two or three million dollars. You might have uh, 250,000 in revenue. That's all you have. So you need to go out and motivate in order to hire and build that team. You have to be someone special and you have to have a certain relationship and ability to hire. And that's really going to be what we try to find out. Okay. Well, let's leave it here. I do, we went a little bit over time. So Mark, a huge thank you. And yeah, I traveled down to California pretty often. So hopefully we can meet in person someday. I really appreciate it. All right, Cassius. Thank you very much. And thanks for taking the time and reaching out. I appreciate it.